Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn from Focus Compounding on air live with Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you are tuning in with us, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, be sure to check out all of our content that we push out onto the internet. The best place to do that is to follow me on Twitter at at Focus Compound. Uh, if you're interested in learning about our money management services, uh, you can go to focuscompound.com and click the Invest With Us tab or reach out to me directly at andrew at focusedcompounding.com. So Jeff, how's everything going on your end? Good. Yep. Um, yeah, you have the any surprises or anything? Um, no, not really. I mean, uh, the market's up quite a bit by now for the, you know, for the year. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if that's a surprise or not exactly, but, uh, other than that, you know, we, we've talked about some of the other things, the banking stuff basically is the only big things that have happened so far this year is the period around the time of the Berkshire meeting and the, um, you know, different banking stocks that were dropping a lot and the few that were taking over and everything. If you would have had a crystal ball at the beginning of the year and I would have told you that that was going to happen a few months later, would you have guessed that the market would be a little bit more turbulent? Or are you not exactly surprised that here we are, as you see on the screen, the S&P 500 is of about 11 and a half percent. And that's just the price movement. That's not even mm -hmm. taking into account dividends, I believe. Yeah. Uh, no, I probably wouldn't have guessed that it'd be up that much. And probably definitely would have guessed that there'd be more turbulence overall, more volatility. Um, but these things generally don't turn that quickly. Uh, you know, the entire stock market and usually you have uh, the, you know, the median stock do worse just the number of stocks doing well do uh, come down lower and stuff. Um, you don't necessarily have the biggest things that make up an index like the S&P 500, the Dow um, declining, and that usually goes on for quite some time. So, yeah, I mean, it, 2000, 2007, uh, all those things were much slower than I would have expected. COVID was fast, but, um, you know, the, the, the market bottomed in early 2009 probably a year and a half after the bad, um, maybe, yeah, probably a year and a half to two years after the really bad subprime news started happening and everything. Um, so for a long time, people said, oh, you'd expect it to be much worse, expect it to be much worse, and then it was even worse than they expected probably. So I think that dot-com was definitely the same way too. The market stayed up longer, but other things started dropping a lot. And so... Uh, I think it's somewhat similar now. The the indexes look pretty good and stuff, but if people were in individual stocks, it wouldn't look as good, depending on what stocks they're in. You know, smaller things, the average thing, it, it's more mixed. Um, yeah. Do you think it's complicated um, because we talked about on the last podcast that something like 96% of the performance this year is from the five stocks, Apple, nvidia google um what else was in there microsoft and i mean 
those, I mean, most of those businesses are what I think we would categorize as being like pretty decent businesses. Mm -hmm. Now the valuations at 30 times PE is probably questionable. Uh, I'm looking at Apple right now. We could quickly look at Google. So Google is at 27 times PE and NVIDIA is at, you know, a zillion times uh, PE, but um, we could look at Microsoft as well. Looks like 35 times PE. So these are all pretty premium multiples. Um, and I don't even think they've had any sort of multiple compression, have they? Since uh, let's call it 2021. I mean, they're, no, they're, well, their multiples some, have stayed Some of them have higher. expanded or stayed the same. Yeah. I mean, Microsoft may be same, maybe a little, little contraction in Microsoft, but most others we're talking about have probably expanded a bit. Certainly NVIDIA has expanded a lot. I guess like the backdrop or just sort of the situation, right? Like we always talk about how if you're running your personal capital, you would try to come up with only your personal capital. You would try to come up with like one idea a year and you would allocate that money into that idea and you just would never sell. And the thought process behind it is over time, the winners just make up such a big part of the portfolio, right? I mean, can you kind of think of that as the S&P 500 at this point, where mm -hmm. these five stocks make such a huge, or take up such a huge uh, part of the, the S&P 500 and so much of the performance comes from these five stocks where it's like, well, maybe these stocks are actually pretty decent. These businesses are actually pretty decent. Most of them, they're not trading at, you know, like, 90 times earnings or 70 or 80 times earnings um, where it's like, yeah, you could see how the markets could continue to go up as long as these generals are still cooking and pushing along. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're not cheap. They're very expensive. So the, the thing I would use is probably price to sales or something like that more than price to earnings because it gives you a better idea of the risks there. You can also look at things like gross profit and all that, but they're also very, very large. So the two problems mm -hmm. that they have are that they, they can't really grow very much um, because they're too big. And uh, and then also the, the price is generally pretty high on a lot of them. Um, you know, Microsoft, I think we, we said it's over 12, uh, it's over 10 times sales. So the other ones, I guess, here um, are more in the... Um, uh, you know, would be more in the mid, I don't know, um, more than five, less than nine times sales or something like that. Um, but they're also very large, right? So, you know, out, um, many of them dominate the areas that they're in. If they get into new business areas, then that would be where people expect a lot of growth. But actually almost all of them that we talked about are very dominant in the business that they're already in. They've already kind of saturated it. Um, and so it's just a question of whether there's new business areas that will grow a lot more for them. Maybe Microsoft and NVIDIA, people are taking into account other things, um, that haven't happened yet. Um, you know, with AI and, and other areas too, but mainly AI stuff, I think. Um, so it's kind of a reverse of, you know, a period, whatever, um, 10 to 15 years ago with Microsoft where it was cheap. So you're a avid movie watcher. Apple mm -hmm. the other day announced their next big thing, their next product line they're coming out with. Uh, it is called Vision Pro. And this is a form of augmented reality. So a virtual reality mixed in with the real world. 
Did you catch any of the videos or anything on no. this new product? No. Okay. No. So basically yeah. it's, if you're familiar with Oculus, I mean, it looks very similar. Um, Facebook acquired Oculus, obviously, but I mean, as you can see right now on the screen, I mean, they're betting on this version of augmented reality where you're going to be able to, you know, surf the internet, check your email, uh, watch movies, do all these different things. And all through this, uh, sci-fi looking goggles that they, uh, mm -hmm they created which the goggles actually i think don't look that bad um but what's the price i think it was something i mean it's totally typical apple i think it was like 3400 or 3500 or something like that um i don't know if we could actually like pre-order it right now or something it says notify me but uh i don't know i just thought it was funny because i remember one time we were talking about the dominance of uh certain things and we were talking about i believe the iphone and how Yes, the iPhone is so important to most people in you know today's world and stuff. But mm -hmm. you know when you're thinking about like um, how durable a product is into the future, I remember you basically said, "Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, am I one day gonna click my forehead and you know be able to like make a phone call like that?" And it's so yeah. uh, so it's just interesting just seeing this new product line that Apple's coming out with, and um, you know the boomer in me says, "I hope this." doesn't take off because you know that's kind of weird but i don't know i mean people i think say that in every new cycle where new technology comes on board and it's something different you know so i don't know i think it's it's interesting i'm just not exactly a fan of this whole metaverse thing and okay you could probably argue that this is could lead to some form of that maybe in the future i don't know just the next step but yeah so i just wanted to bring that up because i thought they were uh interesting yeah um i think probably facebook sales have declined you know from what they were at one time so i think sometimes these things you know pick up in a big way and don't most apple products probably haven't picked up that much in terms of sales at any point but you have a few that did very well and obviously the iphone is the key to their business there this is a much more expensive product um the thing with the where you're talking about the you know, people rooting against this sort of thing being adopted and everything. I think the difference with a smartphone in this to people is a smartphone was very sneaky that way where they didn't think that it would change their life. And then it did. Here we're talking about something that seems like a very sci-fi concept to them and out there and the people who are buying it are probably early adopters of that kind of thing, just want to try it out. Um, where, you know, so... With any of these, we'll see, but it depends on what content is actually made for it. It's not, I don't think it's that important, like what the hardware is and stuff. Um, you know, that's the problem with a lot of the things in the entertainment stuff is that they don't make anything for, you know, there's just not enough content for it being used for entertainment purposes, certainly. But Apple has a very big base of people who develop for other things for them, so it would make sense. Got it. Cool. So um, I wanted to bring up a, a couple things on the podcast that we've talked about in the past. So we've talked a little bit about um, Six Flags and mm -hmm. how the stock uh, had some of the highest insider purchases that you know you've seen in, in quite some right. time. It, it it stood out to you, and um, as you could see right here on this chart, these are the P for purchase, which is on Inside Arbitrage, which is a program that we're going to be using a lot on uh, the podcast. Uh, but recently, the CFO 
uh, started buying some more stock and you had sent to me a recent uh, earnings report that uh, Six Flags uh, pushed out and um, the stock is up a little bit uh, since that report, I believe. Um, but I wanted just to bring it back up. I mean, do you ever think about like these uh, insider purchases as like a form of signal, if you will, right? So you get a new CEO that comes on board and we talked about how that CEO was at Middleby and that was a very successful endeavor for him. I mean, the stock was something like a hundred bagger or something, right? Mm -hmm. And then he goes over to Six Flags and he's going to, you know, look to um, make some changes with the company. I mean, I, we like the asset itself. We like, you know, the company itself and, uh, you know, there's probably a uh, room for change there, but just wanted to know like what stood out to you about Six Flags in, in their first quarter performance. And now you have the, the CFO that is looking to, or who is buying with his own money in the open market and, you know, kind of how do you take that as a signal as opposed to noise and what your general thoughts are on Six Flags? We haven't talked about it in a few months. Well, the the signal is pretty clear that they are betting big on it, um, betting big on having high incentives for it. The whole way that worked out, they brought in someone total outsider, and he brought in lots of other people into the company, and they're compensated a lot with equity, and specifically with hitting certain goals in terms of adjusted EBITDA or whatever they define it as in a few years. Um, so it's a very a setup that a lot of uh, investors like that way, right? That doesn't mean that they'll achieve it, though, right? I mean, I don't know how important incentives are. They may matter in some ways that this is a goal that they're going to try to achieve. But just because you incentivize people a lot doesn't necessarily mean that's a goal that they can achieve. And generally, um, certainly top manager and stuff, it doesn't have any experience in this industry, may not have a good plan for the company, whatever. Uh, there's no overlap with Middleby in terms of what the businesses are like at all. Um, so... That's a bit of the issue. And also some of the things they do with Middleby, they really can't do with a company like this. A lot of that was driven. It was driven by different things, but a lot of it was driven by acquisitions and growth in di different ways and latching onto kind of growing with a few um, big customers, right? And this is completely opposite from that kind of thing. Um, so those are the, you know, the, the situation basically is that there's a lot of incentives. There's the possibility that if they do hit it, obviously the stocks are very cheap and you could buy long-term options. You could buy the stock. You could do lots of things to do well over the next two years or so. Um, but I don't know how realistic it is that they'll hit those goals or anything like that. The companies, um, what's interesting about it is the decisions that they made were taking it in a different direction from what it's kind of been the problem with the company. So they focused on improving earnings, basically, on targeting things like EBITDA and stuff and without necessarily improving att attendance a lot. Analysts, I think, are pretty skeptical of that. And the investing public reacted really badly selling the stock and stuff when they had bad attendance numbers. But lower attendance, but higher um, revenue, higher gross profit per um, person visiting the park is definitely a recipe for better success for Six Flags if they could do that. I don't know that they can do that because you might have to spend more on CapEx for that and you might have developed a poor reputation over a long time and you also might have conditioned people the same way that, you know, Joseph A. Bank did or JCPenney or something to expecting certain kinds of um, sales and promotions and stuff like very low season ticket things and um, 
giving away a lot of food and stuff like that. Uh, so those are the issues. But Six Flags has a very poor level of um, revenue per visitor, basically, per time that they visit, compared to what's at the parks and everything. So, And I don't think it has Why do you think that is? Mm. Um, they pursued that as a strategy, basically. I mean, I think that the... They've even showed in their investor presentations. I think this company has since the CEO took over, but I mean, it's not a secret. The company's admissions, you know, are have adjusted for inflation and stuff. Basically, they're down a lot in 25 years. Uh, this is park is getting cheaper and cheaper to go to over a long period of time. Certainly from the time that I remember it going back 25 years or something, it was more expensive than what it is today. The gate the, the, to get in. Yeah, the missions, the missions yeah. fees. What are your thoughts on when a, a CEO from a different industry comes on board in a different business that's in a totally different industry, right? Like you don't see Bob Iger trying mm-hmm. to run a, a steel company or a coal company or a oil company. I mean, is that generally something that would make you a little bit skeptical? No, I mean, the best experiences I've had if people that came from totally different industries just wanted to run something and did it. So um, usually they're a lot younger. I guess a second career could be okay. I think it's a little dangerous because they could be trying to prove themselves somewhere else after that. But I've had that that's been fine at other ones. So the, the most common one I've had is someone that ran something or did something and then wanted to have either a second career or was really young and doing it. Um, so someone who's just really interested in, in business and wants to take over something and and do I like what Buffett has done at Berkshire um, is usually the best setup that I've had ever in terms of um, CEOs and stuff. It hasn't been coming from the same industry generally. There, Why do you think that is? Well, there's some problems of coming from the same industry. Um, so a few. One, obviously you don't need to, you don't need to, you don't need the same skills that other people at the company will have, Right. So if you're the CEO or something, if you're taking over a company at which everyone else has been working at the same company or the same industry, then you don't necessarily need a lot of understanding of the industry if you're able to understand business, understand people, and be able to motivate them to do what you need to get done to drive um, results, right? So they'll have that knowledge. Um, at other companies, you may need to have, a, um, you may not have that, and so you need to bring a lot more of that as the CEO. Um, but generally duplicating skills that other people at the company have isn't necessarily helpful, right? Um, there's no reason to say to entertainment, the CEO, right? To be the head of an entertainment, um, the entire company like Iger or something. You don't need to have the skills of running the movie studio if you have someone who's good at running a movie studio. If you don't, then you do need those skills and you definitely need skills about understanding the things that people might not be telling you and being able to evaluate things that they might not be honest about and stuff. So, um, but yeah, I don't think a lot of technical knowledge of the industry is important, at, you know, usually at all. Interesting. What do you think someone like Bob Iger, like what's his, if you had to guess, like what do you think his average day is like? I mean, they're just so big and have so many different things going on at Disney. I mean, how do you think they, how do you think someone like him on such a vast scale like that really steers the ship? I don't know. I don't have a lot of detail on what Disney's makeup now is like versus what it used to be. Um, I mean, he wrote a book. He's not a details-oriented person, I would say. Um, 
big picture type person, not heavily financial oriented person. Um, so, uh, probably a lot about the personalities of the people who to promote and who not to, what people to talk to and all of that, but pr- pretty people driven. They have internal large things that are had at Disney, um, all sorts of different planning things and different committees and things and all sorts of complicated stuff. Um, some of the reorganization of that, I think, is part of that, is taking um, certain decisions and giving them directly to individual people for how to use content instead of having it part of a committee to decide what to do with certain content. So, um, yeah. But there's even some board-like structures inside Disney at levels before you get to the CEO, or there have been. Yeah, interesting. Um, I was playing around with this uh, tool inside Arbitrage, and uh, we've talked a lot about Buffett and his constant buying of Occidental. And I thought it was uh, interesting to see that, um, you know, all these purchases, uh, they are, I believe, all Buffett. You could hover over uh, the P and it says 10% owner, Berkshire Hathaway acquired, blah, 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 blah. Um, but it looks like he has a buy price, Jeff, of stock anytime it's under $65 per share. Uh, because if you're looking at this chart right here, I mean, he's never buying, you know, around 65. It's always when it's like mm-hmm. below 65. And uh, it reminded me a lot of what we do, right? Like we, you give me buy instructions, buy up into this price, right? You have like a top, for example, mm-hmm. and you typically don't, you know, waver from that. I mean, really at all. So I'm just curious where that comes from, uh, because I feel like most investors are just like, ah, I just want to get it. You know, they're not patient enough. They just want to get it. And then they'll just, you know, acquire the stock. Uh, for the sake of acquiring it. I mean, obviously, if you look at this chart, Buffett is uh, sort of in the same camp as you where it's a little bit more strategic. I mean, because you could see he's buying a lot between like 55 and $60 a share, uh, sometimes a little bit above it, but definitely nothing above $65 per share. Yeah, we talked about that where he said when it's around 60 or something, I think we'll just see him buy a lot. Um, I think the important one of the important ones with this stock is the volume. He even talked about that in the um, annual meeting um, one time. So I think that if he finds a stock where he can get a lot of volume in the open market and everything, then he might buy it over time that way. And that also allows him to be able to buy at the price that he wants and then not do anything when it goes up a lot more, which you've seen here. Um, I think, you know, he's also talked about how it's a mistake sometimes to do that. Probably thinks that Occidental is less likely to be that kind of mistake. Um, where not paying up enough is... is um, not as dangerous as if he has a really great business where he's afraid that he's not buying enough. And then also just, he's been getting filled so well that I don't think he's been tempted to um, buy at higher prices because he's been able to buy up so much of the company at prices that he's wanted because oil companies are so um, heavily churned as stocks. So I think that's also a big part of it. If you're more likely to pay a higher price over time, if the stock is very difficult to acquire, but if there's plenty of volume, then it's easy to stick to a, a particular buy price. Why do you think they're so heavily churned as stocks? I mean, even at this point, I mean, what do they make up of the S&P 500 energy companies? Yeah. It's like nothing, right? Yeah. 
I don't think people necessarily pay a lot of attention to the, each individual stock, get attached to it and everything. Um, it's where we talked about regional banks, too, the same way. I don't think people pick specific ones out. People who are in Occidental are probably in other oil stocks, too. And um, there's lots of oil stocks, but I don't see a lot of individual shareholders that are big in one and not in another. They seem to buy across the category, so it's like a macro type thing. Um, even in cases where there's big differences in performance long term between different companies, there isn't necessarily short term. You know that they move together a lot. So it, yeah, it's something I've noticed both with oil companies in the United States, you know, below the very very biggest ones, and um, banks that you don't get people who buy individual ones in a big way. Um, they buy them as a group or something like that. And they may buy the very biggest ones, the top you know, four or so in size, uh, picking out one of them, but they don't do that for smaller ones. So there's probably very few people that would own Occidental and not own lots of other oil companies. They want to do like what Buffett's doing, right? So he's in Chevron, he's in Occidental. Very big in Occidental percentage-wise. Um, so probably likes Occidental a lot more, but can get more Chevron. Um, but isn't just wildly buying all oil companies. Um, most people who are managing even a lot less money than Buffett are maybe more diversified across oil companies, but that's typical of him, just as he was in banks, and that was unusual compared to other people in banks. So he picks out specific stocks. Uh, a few months ago, we talked about Dillard's on the podcast, and Ted Weschler's investment in Dillard's uh, is mm -hmm. what we hit on. They recently approved a $500 million share buyback, uh, which is 10% of its... Uh, market cap and the stock is up 1144 percent from its 2020 low um it's had a pretty <laughs> incredible run but the 500 million dollar share buyback i thought we could uh, quickly look at it right now and see if this is in the territory where if you held it well would it be you wouldn't buy more of it you still think it's cheap i mean on here price of sales uh 0.8 even sales 0.7 um uh pe six times even free cash flow 6.6 times 10-year median margins on ebit six percent if you were to give a snap judgment on dillard's what would your judgment be uh well i mean it's difficult and it's, it's always been difficult in terms of valuing the stock the business um in what it is because it's in retail which is not something that i understand and um, it's not overpriced or anything, though, obviously, if it, if it gets the um, good results in the future. But, you know, what is the, I mean, it's had very, basically no growth for the last 10 years, right? And free cash flow generation has been very low. It's had a lot of EPS growth. It's had a lot of improvement in the business, but it hasn't had growth in terms of top line stuff we're talking about. And um, it's hard to know how much free cash flow it'll generate. But if it's run really well, um, then, you know, you can get pretty good returns from it. But there's lots of retailers that I've looked at before and you think the same thing and it doesn't go well. Berkshires have bad experiences in retail too. So um, they often look better than they turn out to be because of how management runs them and the difficulty, the, the you know, the competition in the industry and everything. So you get a lot less free cash flow than you're hoping for. But here we obviously had a big, change where they did very well in terms of uh generating a lot of free cash flow and stuff uh, improving the business and you know i think that may be part of what the original investment perp, uh was and why this company like we talked about in that podcast on it have you ever seriously considered or um gotten close to purchasing a, a retailer or has it always been just 
you know, too hard pile for you. We've owned retailers or things that are in retailing, um, but we haven't owned things like department stores. Mm -hmm. So uh, we've owned more general or retail, I guess you could say. Basically food and cars, supermarkets and car dealers. Um, so that's retail. And then we've owned other things that have a retailing aspect to it, but may have a stronger position in the industry and other stuff too. Um, so they could be online and offline or something, but maybe they also produce a lot for the industry or something. So, um, yeah, but something like this, no, I haven't owned it. Um, owned something that just does like, um, a department store or something. No, or general merchandise or like, um, probably you'd say a big box store, like a target or a Walmart or something. Um, they're very expensive when they don't have growth prospects. I mean, they're, they're very expensive when they do have growth prospects and sometimes they're very expensive when they don't have growth prospects like target and Walmart are not cheap stocks and they haven't grown the, you know, they haven't gained market share and stuff for a long time. So, um, and, and then you have the ones that are cheap, obviously are usually having some sort of decline. Um, and then you have a big response to like same source sales and all of that. It's hard to know because it really depends on how management responds to it. Also, there's not that many um, department stores are a little different, but in general in retail, a lot of them are like restaurants and stuff where they went public and a lot of the insiders got rid of all their shares and everything. Um, so it's a very, very tough business in terms of if you try to grow it. Um, it might be better if you don't try to grow it, you know, Um when you have a good concept that you think will grow, we talked about tractor supply or something like that. Could you find that early on? Um, when you have a concept like that, it's obviously very good to grow it, but the stock is often very expensive. It wasn't in the case of tractor supply. Um, but they quickly, the market quickly recognizes any sort of unusual growth and rewards it really fast. Um, I mean, we talked about Ollie's, I think, which I've been to and thought about and everything about what their business model is and everything. But, that stock got pretty high price pretty fast. Um, even though in most of the country and stuff, people shouldn't have a lot of familiarity with it. Um, I think during COVID boot barn did pretty well. And again, I think that that the multiple expanded and everything pretty fast on that too, when they see any sort of good results. And these are things that people have to look for because in New York, they don't know what an Ollie's is or what a boot barn is, you know? Um, so this is not like Peter Lynch times when it was a lot easier to find those kinds of things in food or, or whatever, um, motels, any of those things. I mean, it's good if you have a few units and it's really attractive, uh, economics, and then it can grow all around the country, but you have to have it at not a crazy price. Um, so you have to be early to find it. I'm not usually early to find the retailer. And then, um, you have to own it while it has a high PE, but it's okay because of how good the growth will be. So once it's proven in one part of the country, it should be easy to see what the future will be until it gets to too many stores. Even finding it early on though, right? I mean, how many of these companies are going public at two, three, $400 million market caps for where you can find it early, right? They go public mm -hmm. at a billion plus at very high valuations, and then maybe they pull back from there. And that's when, you know, potentially you would see it or come across it. And at that point, it's like, well, it's kind of past that phase of wanting to find it early at a low multiple before anybody else notices it. Yeah. It seems a bit like a are... conundrum a little bit. Mm -hmm. When things are going well, they often get a high price for it and everything. 
we talked about that with the container store, um, which was a perfectly good business and everything it wasn't growing very fast. But, um, you know, in the book, Uncontainable talks about wanting to sell to Berkshire and everything and not doing it because of price going with private equity. It went public at a very high price and then has been a bad performing stock for, you know, a long time, probably down 90% or something, mainly because of the high price and the timing of when it went public. Um, you know, cause it built more into the, what, you know, what the, how interested the market is in, in the stock at that time, right? It doesn't go public in the middle of, um, the housing bust or COVID, you know, times or whatever, which coming out of COVID times, I should say, um, which is more the danger for a stock like that. But other than that, it's not a terribly unpredictable business. So if you just go into a kind of frothier market, you know, I mean, we haven't had IPOs for like a year because the people are too scared of taking the company public, meaning that they might get a price that is not a particularly high price. Right. So that's how you time these things. So yeah, I just restaurants and retail and stuff are that way. So you have to wait a while to see how they do um, in terms of price to be able to have a price that's attractive. You have to wait until a period where they don't do well. Um, and, you know, that could be hard because you could misjudge the competitive situation in terms of their competition. And generally, they don't have, you know, uh, they, they, you know, retailers rarely have moats or advantages or something. Usually they just are better operators. So I think it's similar to things like insurance and stuff. Um, you know, uh, we talked about movies, movie studios, movie studios rarely have competitive advantages as each other. They, the top five or something historically may have advantages over others, but it's just a question of who's running it about how good the results are going to be. And I think that's almost always true with retailers. So, I mean, Walmart as a stock has not done well since Sam Walton died. So it's not that it's been a disaster or anything, but you would have gotten rich if you owned it when you could until he died and then you would have not done better than the S and P or something if you owned it since he died. Um, so I don't think that's unusual for any of those things, but I mean, so it's, it's very execution driven. Just like I think when we talk about insurance and banking and, and other things where you have to uh, do things that anyone can copy, right? I mean, that's the issue is that it can be copied right away. So if you do take certain strategies that others are unwilling to copy, maybe you have an advantage for a little while, but Generally, you can copy anyone and they can copy you. So it's a question of how good you are um, and a question of how willing you are to do certain things too. So, you know, if your motivation is more driven for getting returns for shareholders or something, then maybe it might be better than some other stocks um, because they might have some other motivations besides just getting good return for shareholders. They might not be willing to shrink and, and do all that. Yeah, you talk about timing the cycle with uh, some companies and you referenced uh, or some industries and you referenced uh, restaurants. I mean, how many times has Tillman Fertitta took his company mm -hmm. public and then did like a, some sort of uh, management buyout and then took it public again and just timed the cycle? I mean, he's done it a few times, hasn't he? Yeah. And we talked about um, ARC restaurants on this podcast plenty of times. That stock was much more expensive in like 2007 or whenever, you know, the peak was in that than it has been for the last 15 years or something. And that's pretty typical. So, yeah, you could, I mean, that add a large insider owner. You could have taken it private in some buyout or something then probably. And, um, yeah, at some different time, taking it public at a time like that and stuff. That stock stayed public. Um, yeah, and Landry's tried to buy ARC too, um, higher price than today, but 
they did try to buy it. Um, so yeah, that was also similar with the NASCAR. There were some NASCAR things that were the same way with the tracks that went public. Uh, you notice that they always bought them. There's a couple of them that went public and then were taken private. And if you notice, they went private at lower multiples and they went public. So, yeah. Well, in today's podcast, um, so what we did and what we are going to do uh, going forward is I'm going to tweet out a poll um, with a few different podcast ideas. A lot of these uh, could be, you know, just Jeff and I coming up with ideas or people emailing in, um, uh, you know, certain topics to Jeff that he thinks would be uh, good to have on the podcast and um, whichever topic if i could find it here whichever topic uh wins the poll uh we're going to talk about on the podcast and i don't know why i can't find it uh right now why it's not loading on my uh twitter feed but uh the topic that we're going to talk about is um ideas that you've passed on and why right you look at thousands of ideas a year probably right probably some a little bit more in depth than others. Um, but you know, you, you come across ideas all the time. So, um, I wanted just to walk through some of them and, you know, we could just talk about it and, you know, I mean, the, the factors that, you know, led you not to invest in the particular stock and, you know, um, you know, sort of reverse engineer it. Uh, does it ever feel like kind of crappy when, you know, you pass on a stock and it gets acquired for like a valuation that you thought oh, that's probably what the company was worth. And for whatever reason, you just, you know, did not invest in it. Or is it for you? It's like, well, you just made the decision. So you don't really think about it. I mean, one thing I've noticed after you sell a position, like it doesn't seem like you exactly follow the company too much afterwards company. or you don't follow the stock price afterwards. Yeah. I, I, no, it's never bothered me. Have you ever sold a stock and then bought back into it? So like owned a stock a few different times, same stock a few different times? Yeah. Um, that's a very good question. Uh, yes. Uh, have I ever sold the stock completely and then bought back into it? Is that, a, um, uh, that's an interesting question. I don't know the answer to that. It's possible that, that I have not. I've certainly sold to buy something else, and but I'm trying to think, did I sell all of it? Um, it might not be that that's happened. Um, but it's less common than you think that I'd sell a stock just because of price. Um, so, you know... Um, Do you want to explain but, why you typically sell stock then? If it's not, hey, I made a mistake. Yeah, it's... It's changes in the risk situation, but it could be changes in other things too. You know, um, the size of what's left in terms of, you know, how fast it's likely to grow in the future and, and things like that. But it, it isn't just that it went up a lot usually. Um, it, I guess it could be in some cases, but it, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I do follow stocks that I've never bought and follow stocks that I've sold. Um, but I, I, it's unlikely that I would probably buy back something that I had sold, I would say, compared to other people. That seems to be pretty common when I talk to other people, that they've owned something more than once, yeah. So many people, I feel like. It's like they either, you know, you, you learn a name, you you learn the, the story, the situation, and um, they they trade around it. 
a lot, you know, yeah. and trade in and out. Right. So, I mean, I don't want to get into detail on what things we own and all that, but there's certainly stuff that we've repeatedly bought and sold, but we've never eliminated the position. So I wouldn't count that as the same thing. But if a stock doubles, we might sell it. And if it halves, we might buy it. But that doesn't mean that we ever got rid of it. So I guess to answer your question, you're talking about like getting out of it completely and then going back into it, that some people might be doing that. No, that, that would be real. I can't think of cases where I've done that. Okay, so in that situation where we have um still own the stock and you know perhaps bought some more and then sold it you know kind of traded around the position a little bit Mm -hmm. uh why have we done that is that that more so you just being familiar with the price action and you know how that would they're gonna think about it it would just be that would be purely based on price right so some things are easier based on price and so price and sizing it would make sense if a stock doubles or something to sell it and if it halves to buy it, um, I think something like Occidental that Berkshire's buying, I think he would be willing to do that kind of thing more. He, he can't, he owns so much of it, people would be paying attention or anything, but I wouldn't be surprised if, that's why I think the fact that he's buying at a very specific price isn't that weird for Occidental, um, and he might not have too big a range of what price he'd be willing to pay. And I would feel the same way about a stock like Occidental. Um, he wrote up Vitesse, VTS. And um, that's one where, you know, when I was writing up, it might have been 19 or something. I forget. Uh, it's around there, the stock price. And so um, that's when we're at 30. We would have said, okay, it's a different situation than at 15, right? So you might have said, it's really attractive at 15. It might be fine, might not be fine at 30. And at 60, it's too expensive or something, you know? Like, um, you only have to sort of think about it and do a lot of calculations and stuff if it's around 30 or something. Um, if oil prices go down a lot, then, you know, it could work out badly even at a very low price. But um, that's probably the kind of thing. So, you know, if you were, say, you were looking at 30, you'd say, okay, well, if it halves to 15, it's very attractive. If it doubles to 60, you know, you have to buy at 15. You have to sell at 60. You might be thinking it was at 30. Uh, I, I say 30 just because when I wrote it up and stuff, I kind of said it's probably not worth a lot less than 30. Um, but, you know, trying to say what is like a fair valuation actually on it or something, um, like putting aside what the stock is, because the stock was a spinoff. Um, so, and, you know, it might have been 20 or something. I mean, it spun off below that, but when I was writing it up, it was already probably a 20 or something. Mm-hmm. And you haven't um, ran up a spinoff in some time on focus compounding. So I'm kind of curious, like what stood out to you about VTS to write that? Was it purely a price thing then? No, it was because it was a spinoff from Jeffries and it's had no debt. Basically, it has a little bit of debt. Um, And it said that it might not grow its reserves over time, that it would be focusing on its dividend. So that's why. I mean, like where I've talked a little bit about that, why write up that stock and not write up others. There's a lot of U S oil companies, oil and gas ones that are pretty small and, um, all sorts of different ones that might be attractive as cheap or cheaper might be in areas people would like better. So for this one, for instance, here, you're like mostly North Dakota and stuff. Whereas, um, Callen, right. CPE is just in West Texas. Um, so isn't that more attractive place to be uh, in terms of where you own the oil and everything and less marginal than here with VTS? Um, 
Yeah, but what's the history of that company versus the history of this company, right? So this company was created about 10 years ago inside Jefferies to buy up a bunch of stuff. They're, um, they're non-operating interests, right? So some people might like those less, but actually that makes it somewhat more possible that they might not grow. I think it might focus on capital allocation because you only would see certain deals and only think of yourself as investing in those things. They'd mentioned that they might sell their minerals that they own and everything. So it just, they might be less tempted to do other things. Whereas when we compare that to some of the others, which I mentioned and specifically like Callan, um, they have debt where this company doesn't have debt, right? So not having debt is important because then these other companies might have debt, which they intend to pay down instead of say buying back a lot of stock or paying out a dividend. Whereas if you're operating closer to neutral in terms of the balance sheet, you might be more likely to pay me out a dividend or to buy back the stock. Um, I wouldn't want you to pay down the debt, right? Because if, even if say the debt was, you know, 7% or something, um, so whatever would have been, let's say it's 8% or something. And which would have been a pretty high yield at the time that you took on the debt because yields were so low, which is actually like junk debt at that time. Um, I don't think it's very attractive to pay off because after taxes and stuff, we're talking about something that's closer to 6%. Um, not all these companies pay quite high tax rates, but it could be close to six for some companies. And then a 6% or 6.5% after tax cost is not very... I mean, I wouldn't want to take oil out of the ground and use it to pay off something that's 6.5%. We don't even know that oil in the ground isn't going to go up at 6.5%, so I don't like that deal at all. Um, you know, you're doing something to take it out to pay now, to do this to pay off a financial debt that you have. It's, it's not a very good exchange. So I don't think that I want a highly levered thing that's going to deleverage over time. I know a lot of people like that, but I don't like that idea at all. Yeah. So you'd want something that maybe might lever up or something that doesn't have leverage, right? I don't really want right now a company to say, we're going to focus on delevering because you're paying down cheap liabilities and you're using potentially valuable assets to do it. Cause, cause it's not like oil is necessarily overvalued. We've talked about this. I mean, if you look at the long-term averages and stuff, oil seems fairly normally valued and yet junk type credits, certainly don't seem any more out of line in terms of pricing versus oil and stuff, when you, especially when you consider what interest rates are now, the spreads on and everything. It's just, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't like sell my resource off, basically, to my real asset off to, to pay off this money, this paper um, debt that I have. So, so that's a big part of it is the capital allocation. And some of these, you know, I've done all sorts of acquisitions and issuing shares and all that. And so that complicates it. And they were doing the opposite, right? They're they're buying back stock. I mean, does this have all the hallmarks of uh, a, you could be a stock market genius type of spinoff, or would you say not so much? Mm. Yeah, yeah, it, it has that. That doesn't mean it'll work okay. out well, but it has that. Yeah. Mm. I mean, but but they spun off Crimson Wine, which I never liked, but but the same. Um, co-founder of Lucadia who was in Jeffries because Lucadia's merged with Jeffries kept his shares in that in that stock um so we'll see what happens but it's possible that you'll get a pretty fair price in terms of what gets paid out to you and eventually they might buy things back they'll probably acquire more do more than I want them to do but it was willing to write it up because it was more potentially unique 
compared to other companies. It's closer to what Buffett would want, what I would want in a business in that you'd be willing to buy into oil things if you had a company set up like this, where it had been built up over the last uh, 10 years or so, um, and now is willing to pay out to you. Um, when you thought about like the range of outcomes, we've talked a lot about how oil is basically at like a normal price, for example, and at the price that uh, you wrote the stock up at, I mean, it was a 10% dividend yield was the thought of, okay, they have very little debt. They're going to buy back stock. Um, they generate a ton of free cash flow uh, and they pay a, a huge, you know, dividend yield or that has a huge dividend uh, yield. I mean, is the stock going to trade more in line with other similar companies on like a dividend yield uh, basis, which could be way higher. Um, if oil continues at a normal price, I'm going to make 10%. I mean, it sounds like to me, there were a lot of, mm -hmm. like from a range of outcome perspective, there are a lot of ways to win in this stock. Yeah. So, I mean, the price that it used there, you know, did the calculation for the SEC calculation. Um, you can mostly ignore the gas that it has. So it has a mix of oil and gas and the oil alone would be worth about what you'd be paying probably for it. Um, you know, it helps. It's it's a short-lived asset, right? So the, these don't last very long. They have a pretty sharp decline in terms of um, what the production is going to be. So Buffett talked about that. So that does change things a bit. But obviously the um, situation with inflation makes something like this more attractive. I think that probably that's why Buffett's in things like Chevron Occidental and stuff, and that's why I would look at this and be more interested in it. To get something at a discount to, I mean, so to give an idea, we talk about the present value thing. People talk about the problems with the present value, but the present value calculation is quite conservative in some ways. So it, it, the SEC uses a, has oil and gas companies do a um, present value calculation discounting at 10%, right? But they don't inflate the future results, um, prices and things. Um, so future oil prices aren't inflated. Okay, so that's like a 10% real discount rate. What's the likely nominal return that's going to be on the S&P or something? I mean, maybe is it 6% nominal? And here you have 10% real is what the calculation is being done at. And then here you're buying in at some of these companies at two thirds or something in the value of it. It's just a lot cheaper, but it doesn't mean that terrible things can't happen um, with the price of oil coming down and everything. And you're very exposed to that. But so is it better to take a risk on say oil, or something and instead of being diversified across the S&P to get much more attractive um, potential returns right because of that PV10 that's at a much higher return than the S&P um, if that really happens if oil prices really stay the same in um, real terms over time you should get much better results from a, an oil stock trading at one times the PV10 than um, in the S&P and then these things are sometimes available at two thirds or half or something. I mean, on a leverage basis, when we talked about Callan, it was less than half. Um, this is on leverage. There's a couple on leveraged ones or close to on leverage this. And there's another um, that are, you know, they're at two thirds. They were at two thirds or something um, using the end of year pricing. Uh, it's a little complicated because uh, they do monthly. The SEC. So you use the 12 month 
the the average of the 12 months so it was using like 90 dollars a barrel oil or something um and much more expensive natural gas but to be fair both of the expectations for last year are pretty close to both of the actual realized prices for last year are actually close to the long-term average price of the commodity so if you look the 12 year the 12 month um, average for oil is not far from what the the expected real price i would say would be and actually for natural gas it's really close to being exactly on six dollars is closer to the long-term average than two so we're at two but two is very unusual price for natural gas oil 75 or something is a pretty normal price okay so six dollars average two dollars today a little bit above two dollars like two dollars and thirty cents on the last podcast you had said that you thought natural gas was very cheap uh today is that all on a normalized average figure Mm, yeah so natural gas i I haven't been that interested in natural gas for mainly because of what happened about 10 years ago um the, the, a problem with natural gas is that you find it when you're looking for oil. So yep. there's an extent to which it's a byproduct. Um, and that is a potential problem. Um, if people are irrational about oil, but as long as they're not irrational about oil and stuff, and we don't expect too much oil supply in the future and everything, I, I think it can be okay. Yeah. Um, what happened 10 years ago? Yeah. Uh, well, I just mean that was, I don't remember the exact date of it, but that was the boom. There's a crazy boom in terms of finding oil in the United States, trying to produce a lot of oil, trying to buy up a lot of oil, whatever. And that didn't make a lot of sense. Um, and I, I've said before that I think that's why now we're still suffering from that in terms of that's why the capital allocation is, to, is different. It, it may also be ESG, but I think mainly it's different because of... Um, the companies that took on debt then and did all those things. There was a irrational, you know, irrational exuberance or whatever about the future of oil and the, um, and a desire to, uh, you know, like a bubble. It was like AI, you know, same sort of thing. And so that led to some things that were worrying about natural gas longer term. Um, because, I mean, it can take a while, but like the places we're talking about, um, North Dakota, um, you know, Pennsylvania and Southeast Ohio and stuff, um, that we're talking about with NACO, um, eventually they put in the infrastructure and stuff so they can get the natural gas out of these places and everything. But the original reasons for why these things get developed and stuff when they were originally, I mean, in all these cases, there was coal in the area and stuff first that they could find, and then they can find other things, um, is because of a desire to produce a lot of, say, oil or something like that. Like, there's a belief that there's a lot of it there and they can start producing. And then eventually this could lead to too much natural gas. Um, so we'll see what happens. But, yeah, I mean, it's not that I think the $6 would be a normal price on um, natural gas. But certainly, long term, there's no reason to believe that 6 is less, six and a half or something is less reasonable than where we are now. Um, it's, yeah, in between those numbers, it's pretty reasonable. Um, so, you know, we'll see what happens, but I think we've talked about before, I'm, I don't focus that much on the demand side. Um, uh, I don't think it makes a huge difference whether we have a lot of demand for oil or natural gas in the future for whether you'll do well in investments in oil and natural gas. Um, I think there's a lot of things about the economics of it, of what it costs, 
um, in general, but also particularly the the ones you buy into what, what prices make sense, um, in terms of the cost, but also just supply growth and everything. So, you know, you so want it's much more of a supply thing for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of similar to what you're seeing in home building right now, where rates go from nothing to 7% and home builders are still, you know, doing okay because we had this huge, I'll use your word, you know, irrational exuberance um from 08 underbuilt in this country after and now there's a su- mm-hmm. shortage as it relates to supply of homes and you're seeing that reflected in home prices you're seeing that in home builders it's a very much the same situation for oil i mean even look yeah, at like uh, rate counts and all that other stuff and that's continuing to be down mm-hmm. um china's coming back on i know these are very short-term things right um but you know take that out of it the demand out of it from like a supply perspective. Yeah. There hasn't been as much growth in supply over the past 10 years, uh, whether that's ESG, whether that's a change in capital allocation, um, it's reality. So, and you listen to, we've talked about so many times on the podcast, the capital allocation, this cycle is different. I don't know. I think if you don't know, if you're an oil company, you don't know, where your industry is going to be in 10 years from now, it's probably hard to feel comfortable about going out and, you know, increasing supply. But as they say in oil, I mean, high prices cure high prices. If oil were to go berserk, of course, there's going to be Mm -hmm. supply that comes on board because that's just the nature of supply and demand. Um, But yeah, it reminds me a lot of like the home building industry and homes in general in the United States over the past 10 years. Yeah. Well, since COVID, at least homes and autos haven't, um, it, it, people have overestimated the extent to which those prices might come down and stuff simply because there hasn't been much of a change in the industry. It's not like the last time that this happened, there wasn't an ability for them to cure those high prices by bringing on more supply. They didn't do it. So they didn't change what that was in terms of, um, there's very limited supply of housing in the United States. Um, so there wasn't enough time for them to make a big effort in that way in, uh, individual, um, single family homes there, there was in apartments, uh, they built a lot of them. So, uh, it's very different from what happened in the two thousands. Boom. Um, so the, you know, that that's sometimes the price of something changes a lot and we don't have a big response in, in terms of, um, supply, right? And then sometimes it, it that doesn't happen. Uh, we talked about Encore Wire, right? The price of copper could go crazy or something, but it's not going to change the supply of copper instantaneously like that. It, it can't. So um, that's just a blip that you have. You make a bunch of money. It doesn't long-term really hurt your business or something. You just make outsized profits for a little while. And it can't really have much effect on anything else. Um, but if you had a boom in which people really decided that they need to open up more copper mines and stuff because they believe, you know, China's going to grow at some phenomenal rate or something, then you'd have too much supply and then you'd have to deal with that for decades. But some things in COVID went crazy and you just benefit from higher prices, but don't have a lot of extra supply come on. And then others, you have a lot of extra supply. I mean, there's probably too many warehouses for, you know, having Amazon things and stuff. And so we don't see that because we don't have data on that stuff, but it's probably terrible. And in, in, if you were in that business or something, I mean, like a copper mine, for example, though, how long would it take for a mine to come online, right? To bring supply in, in the industry. I mean, it's not instantaneous, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So I mean, nuclear reactors. How long? How long does it take for one of those to come online? I don't know. I mean, they haven't built one in the United States in forty years or something, so they don't come online at all. But um, yeah, it, it, the project's always overrun and it costs a lot more than you thought and everything. Um, yeah. So the, and the and I mean, look at the lithium is, uh, mine that that NACO's trying to. You know, that's part of. I mean, mm-hmm. this this is like a multi yeah, multi year thing, right? <laughs> and that's a good point because. Um, Lithium, for instance, has went, went up a lot in price. It's come down somewhat, but people are making a big deal of this. Lithium's not rare. Like, it's not remotely rare. Some of the things we're talking about, um, you know, so say copper or say like, um, you know, um, tin and things like that. Lithium is not a particularly rare thing in the world. It's not particularly hard. It, it, it's not rare. There's actually plenty of sources of it probably. Many of them should be in very politically stable places. It's it's widely distributed around the world. Um, so, you know, the, the United States, obviously, it's hard to extract anything because of the issues that you'll have, um, you know, in, in highly developed countries, it's going to be hard to build mines and things like that ever um, because of the political situation. Not in my backyard stuff, um, the disputes between the federal and local governments, uh, environmental things, union things, all sorts of things. So um, it's always going to be really, really difficult in in um, countries like that, as it will somewhat even in things like energy and stuff. Um, California Resources is a public company. There are rules in California and stuff. Um, you can't, you know, they've made rules about living within a certain distance of, uh, you know, schools and things being within a certain distance of oil wells and stuff. Um, and, and so... You know, um, th- th- there's concerns that people might have even in places like that. I mean, that's a U.S.-based company. It's oil reserves in the United States, and people might be worried about what happens to it, um, that those reserves might be worth less over time because of rules in California that aren't the same rules in all other states. Yeah, I mean, the permitting process in a lot of these things, uh, it could take years, right? Two, five, ten years sometimes, if not more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then that's what drives up the prices and stuff, you know. But we've talked about that because that's a thing with um, lime and cement, um, much less so, but also true just in aggregates generally. It's usually easier once they have a permit for something to expand and do all the other things. So a big part of the the moat, right, is actually that you've already been approved in some place that you already exist, that you're already polluting or whatever there. And then you can expand that much more easily than you can to be a completely different place. So having a reserve someplace that hasn't been developed may not be as good as having someplace that you can continuously expand. So it's, you know, like having a TV license in some country or something. If you have a a plant that's already producing in some state, um, similar to Copart, right, with a salvage yard. Um, If you got one junkyard in town, it's a lot easier to grow that one junkyard usually than to get approval to put another one in. So you could end up with more of a monopoly than you might expect. Very dirty industries can tend more towards monopoly if there's not a totally free market where there's um, government intervention and stuff, the public can prevent things from happening or at least slow them down. Mm-hmm. In my area where I live, there was a, a, a county thing where I guess I was reading about it online. I guess supposedly nobody goes to like these, you know, county commissioner meetings or whatever. And, mm-hmm. uh, there was somebody that was trying to start an asphalt plant here. 
<laughs> and mm-hmm. it like was a public outrage and you know hundreds of people showed up and the the county ended up turning it down but they're like the county basically said that that's normally nobody comes to these meetings handful of people but you know you're trying to put an asphalt plant um you know in and all of a sudden everybody cares and it's this huge deal and they come to protest the whole thing mm-hmm. yeah whereas if it was already there you probably still would have moved there so yeah i mean that's yeah. why that's if it, the it was there 20 the 30 years thing. ago mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so that's the advantage to having it yeah and there's a lot of them are based on that we did, i don't think we've talked enough about that when we're talking about cement and lime but certainly lime it's pretty obvious that if you look at the record for the last 40 or 50 years it's a record of um uh 40 years or so a record of it being easier if you already have um a pre-existing site so higher and higher concentration in individual sites and improving them and stuff instead of more sites um economically it probably make more sense to be more spread out than it is but politically and all of that kind of stuff it makes sense to be less spread out and that's good because it helps in the industry in terms of returns it's worse for the consumers but it's better for the firms in the industry that it, it means that you're spreading it out less you right it would be like if you think about amazon or something and they could deliver in five days instead of overnight or whatever their business would be better if they could operate out of one location and stuff instead of having to cover the country but people want an mm-hmm. amazon warehouse next to them they don't want a uh, asphalt plant next to them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. let's shift gears and uh, talk a little bit about uh, ideas that you've passed on and why and what led you to uh, pass on uh, uh, investing in that company uh, to start we've uh, spoken a good amount about uh, games workshop on this podcast you have said that mm-hmm. you wish you would have bought it you did a lot of research on it and yeah. um you know i don't i mean would you consider that I had this question written down actually when I was preparing. I mean, okay. what would you consider to be one of your biggest errors of omission? I mean, would you put Games Workshop in that camp or Maybe. not so much? Maybe. It's really hard to tell because you have to have enough information at the time. So sometimes you say, okay, well, what if I focused on that? Would there be enough information? Um, it's definitely possible that Games Workshop might be. So I followed the company. It was very interesting. Sometimes there's a company that looks very interesting, has an interesting asset, whatever, but you feel isn't being run particularly well or or it could make a lot more money if it was run differently. So Games Workshop had a CEO before where I thought that probably if they, um, they can make a lot more money if they operate the company differently. And uh, then they had a new CEO come in when I wasn't paying attention and everything and didn't buy the stock. And so that was a pivot that, you know, it would have been good to buy in on that change. Um, the only problem that I had with the company before was the previous CEO, not anything wrong with him and stuff, just the way he was running the company and stuff. They could make more money if they, um, operated the company differently, but you don't necessarily know that the new CEO is going to be completely different that way. Um, but he did write letters and things that made it pretty clear what he was going to do. So why did you pass on it? That's the topic today. Yeah, I just wasn't following the company when it okay. changed from one CEO to the next, yeah. I mm-hmm. mean, I passed on it before because of who the CEO was previously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we talked a little bit about that earlier today, but that could be a great place to look to, um, you know, for ideas, right? Is when there's a company you love, CEO but change. don't like the CEO, and then there's a CEO change that comes in, and 
we were talking about it offline the other day. What does the new CEO do? Well, you get to blame all the past mistakes on the previous CEO. You get to re, you know, reset the, mm-hmm. the deck a little bit and go a different direction that may make sense, right? Maybe there's a new CEO because what the previous CEO was doing didn't add any value. And maybe there are some basic fundamental blocking tackling things that the new CEO can implement and, you know, go different direction with the company. So that's a got to be a great uh, hunting ground for uh, great investments. Yeah, this one's a little uh, better situation than that, but harder to see. The company probably was performing fine um, and certainly didn't change CEOs because of performance issues that way, but it was probably vastly underperforming what it was capable of as I think it was one of the more valuable IPs in the world. Um, this is Warhammer, is this, uh, you know, so the Warhammer, which is originally a fantasy game thing, tabletop game, but it's really the Warhammer 40,000 or whatever it's called, um, uh, the future, the futuristic themed one. Um, that's the big uh, moneymaker. So uh, the, uh, so, so it was like, we were talking about Disney and stuff, right? So like Eisner taking over Disney or something, um, back then able to just raise prices and things, um, with what had already been built up. Um, it's more in that line. It was a company that was a lot better than I think investors realized in terms of what it owned and stuff, you know, so there's lots of companies like that. I mean, most great, um, IPs, great, whatever things that you might own aren't, aren't, you're not making it, even those things where you're making a lot of money off of them, you're not making as much as you could be making off of them. Um, so there's tons of examples of companies like that. When you have a decent enough return, people don't really complain that much and everything. And so they may not realize that you could be doing a lot better. So, I mean, investors tend to complain about the companies that are having the somewhat poor returns on capital and stuff, even if it's mostly because they're in an industry where they can't do a lot better than that. And they don't necessarily pick on the companies that have um, potential for even better returns just because they're already high versus their industry. So um, they like to look at a peer or something and say that you're, if you're as good as a peer, then they don't really say, well, you should be a lot better because you're, you know, you're even better than that. Um, so, I mean, you could look at the, I guess on quick FS, it probably has some where you can look at the longer term results because this is a change that happened in the last 10 years. So mm-hmm. if you look yeah, at I mean, the, even like, look at their something. Sure. You could bring it up. Um, yeah. I mean, look at their return on equity, their return on assets, return on invested capital for people listening in 2013, return on equity, 33%. Um, and it looks like if I just going to eyeball the past three years on average is probably 60 to 65% return on equity. Uh, gross margins have largely stayed the same, uh, mm-hmm. but EBITDA margins have basically doubled going from 22.5% to high 40s, operating margin yeah. going from 16% to 40s. Um, that's a good tell, right? That there's a solid business there if you have pretty high, stable gross margins, right? And then yes. maybe so things they all, could change on the operating side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they always have very high gross uh, returns on capital. Um, if you look at the overview or something, we could see where the sales picked up a lot. They refreshed it with more things coming out more often, um, which drives higher sales for them when they do that. Um, and driving higher sales through the same system just gets you much better returns, you know, when you're having such high pricing. 
market cap was 228 million in uh in uh 2013 mm. by the way and now it's 3.1 billion yep so there you go it's 15 times or something it also buys back stock uh, uh well it mostly pays a dividend actually so one thing it did under the previous ceo on this one is that all excess cash they pay out as a dividend so they normally operate a balance sheet that's pretty neutral so it's a little bit like what people might expect vts will be in the future um, and not a crazy price, right? Seven times uh, sales or something now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So not that it's cheap, but it's as cheap or cheaper than some of the other stocks we were looking at now, the the FANG things or whatever they're called today. Um, I don't know how much bigger it can get, but obviously the 99% of people in every country have never heard of um, Warhammer. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stella Jones. We talked a little bit about this mm -hmm. last year. We pulled up the um, investor presentation and you're talking about the capital allocation and you've written about this unfocused compounding a few times, I believe, once yeah. or twice. Uh, what are your thoughts on Stella Jones? This, to me, uh, is a business that I think Buffett would like. Yeah, I think he would buy the whole thing, maybe, unless they're concerned about environmental stuff or whatever. You know, they do deal, that is always a concern of mine. They deal with some chemicals that are, have an issue with them, I think. Um, just that, not for any of their customers or anything, but just that they have workers working with it. Um, so, uh, it's just that it's not cheap enough. So, it uses leverage. It's always levered. So, one, you have to be careful about that. So if we look at like enterprise value to sales, it's fairly normal um, to a little expensive. They can't ever convert at a very good free cash flow level, right? Because the basically, this is a company that makes um, poles for, well, it makes two things. It makes a few things. But uh, the two ones that have been a major part of their business for a long time is it makes railroad ties. So it makes the, the wood part of the railroad track that you're used to seeing. And it makes poles for telephone poles, for utility poles, you know, power poles that you're used to seeing in your neighborhood. And um, in addition to that, it also makes things for uh, treaty wood for like decks, basically, for, you know, for homes. Um, so like selling the wood to a retailer who then would use it to, to make it into decks. Um, those are basically their business. But... You have to season the wood, so it probably has to spend nine months or something on average, their inventory just laying out there in a pile like I think you you see in that picture. Yeah. So um, that basically you have to finance that, right? If you want to make a good return, you can't just have it sitting there all the time like that. And so um, that's something that you have to do yourself. Um, and so they've always used leverage, but you have to take that into account that their actual free cash flow return is not particularly high. Like compared to Games Workshop or something, this is a very, this is a very, very low. The product economics are poor, right? So the competitive position is good, but the product economics are bad. You wouldn't want to be in this business. Um, you're dealing with a few large customers who have a lot of bargaining power with you. Now, if you become their only supplier and everything, then you could say that you can bargain for that. And this isn't a particularly big part of their CapEx budget for these companies necessarily. But the product economics are not that good. Um, and the uh, uh, competitive position over time has gotten better. The operationally has gotten better and everything. So that's where the advantage comes from. But it's the opposite of Games Workshop that way. This is very low gross margin, low turn type of thing you need to use debt and everything so um yeah it's better to own warhammer or something as an ip than to to season this wood 
They do buy back stock, as you said. They they always have leverage. Oh, yeah, the cap allocation, yeah. So it's just the history of this company has been that they've... It's purely cap allocation. thing. This is like an outsider-type company. It's built up from the 90s, you could see. Um, It's listed in Canada and the United States, so there's some confusion over that. But... um, it's you know been a huge returning stock. It was a very very small micro cap when I first came across it, and it's just acquired lots of different companies in the same business that it's in all around the country, all around both countries, the United States and Canada. And then it's used debt as much as possible, um, and uh, so constantly, and then to and then bought back stock, um, and it has a projection for free cash flow over the next few years that's pretty good, and and then. Ba- well, it doesn't really have a projection for free cash flow, but what it has a projection for is like what it intends its capital allocation to be. And because of the way the company works, that suggests a very high level of free cash flow, even if they're not projecting it. Mm-hmm. Um, the outsider management or CEO that was at this company for a long time and turned into the success uh, that it is, he's has mm-hmm. since left, I believe, to go to a yeah, completely but- different industry, I believe. Yeah, but like, I don't know that that matters that much, you know. Um, I think they'll keep to the same capital allocation. It, I, I don't remember if, I don't think it did. Um, the outsiders never talked about general dynamics, right? After that, oh yeah, they probably did a little bit afterwards. But general dynamics followed us outsider type path through like three CEOs. Um, once they get into doing it and they see that their stock goes up, you know. I mean, it's not a weird th- if your stock's gone up at twenty percent a year for twenty five years or something then you probably say, oh, we should keep doing the same thing we were doing before, you know? So for you, it was purely price? Well, look at enterprise value to free cash flow. Yeah, 29 times. It's not low because if you look at free cash flow margin, I mean, the free cash flow margin of this company is bad. It's 5%, right, is the median free cash flow margin. And EV is 1.5 times. So you're paying an incredibly high price versus free cash flow. Because free cash flow is really low here. I mean, it's a little debatable how much value this company really creates because um, if it keeps doing and keeps buying back stock and everything, maybe this can work out. But this requires Transdime-like um, capital allocation stuff all the time, both in acquiring other companies and buying back your stock in a smart way because you are paying for the earnings, basically. What people must be valuing this on is reported earnings per share and earnings per share growth over time you know, they can't actually take that much money out of the business and pay it to you. So, you know, um, I, yeah, you know, unless it gets down to 10 times earnings or something, it's tricky because you use a fair amount of debt and you convert so little into cash. Right. Like I was just talking about NACO and everything and that, right. I mean, that converts a huge amount of the earnings per share and stuff gets converted into, um, free cash flow over time. So it's just a difference, you know, and yeah. So purely price. So if it did get down to 10 times earnings, you'd probably take another look. Maybe it, I also don't know if they can buy any other things in the industry and stuff at this point, they're pretty big. Um, it's possible that they could. So yeah, if it got cheap enough, maybe, um, it's very, very predictable. It just has these contracts that, you know, it signs every few years with its customers and then it escalates, um, on price. It also, some of the businesses, the deck business, which I don't know if it might just drop off a cliff. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just, it's not a value price. It's at all, but 
you know, but when I was looking at it, even at 10 times earnings or something, it's probably not that cheap on enterprise value to free cash flow. It's just being willing to conti- uh, consider it when it's that expensive. It's, it's very predictable and stuff. So it's one that I could see people who like moats and compounders and stuff to buy into. Uh, next company, Nathan's Famous Inc. We talked about this, I believe, in uh, 2021 or 2022. Yeah, kind of right by the bottom. Uh, I think right around $50. I don't know how serious you thought about it um, and what your thoughts were on Nathan's, but we have followed this company for some time. So do you have any general thoughts on Nathan's? Do you like the business model? Do you like their capital allocation? What are your thoughts on Nathan's? Yeah, I don't have a lot of thoughts on Nathan's. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I tried to out like their, um, their restaurant thing that they were testing out and stuff. So I tried that. So like, you know, I sampled some of the product and saw where it was sold and, and went to, um, locations where they're trying restaurant things and stuff. Um, so enough to do some scuttlebutt on it that way, I guess. Um, it, the product economics are good. You know, you have a, you're, this is basically a brand business. Um, a lot of what you're seeing in the results here. Um, so that's all good. They rely a lot on a company to produce for them. Um, in, in terms of the, uh, they break it down into a couple of different categories. They say like branded products or something. I, I don't remember all the categories that they use to describe how they do it, but you know, they sell some stuff through food service things. They sell some stuff through supermarkets and everything. And so the supermarket one, for instance, they're getting royalties on someone else producing it. Um, were there two books written on Nathan's? Yep. I believe mm-hmm. so. Yeah. I've read both of them. Yeah. So, um, I don't know that I've ever gotten that close to buying Nathan's. I don't know that it's been that cheap. I don't know. We'd have to look. Um, you know, it's a pretty small stock. Mm-hmm. So $316 million market cap. Yeah, I mean, all these things that we're talking about are not cheap for the category that they're in normally. Like, it's not like Games Workshop, Stella Jones, or Nathan's Famous are unrecognized and cheap and stuff. They, they basically don't qualify as value stocks for the most part. Um, and Nathan's had a very long period where it didn't perform well at all. Um, yeah, so... I mean, from those books and stuff, it, it's had very, very long periods where it didn't do well. Um, but it had a change in approach and stuff that you can see here in the last 20 years. So never seriously considered it is the answer. I think that's correct, yeah. They're also going into um, like the QSR business as well. I don't know how that's doing, but I remember that's one thing that they were talking mm-hmm. about for a little bit. They're having their own little uh quick service restaurant which i didn't know how that would do quite frankly i wasn't too positive on that yeah i tried it a few times to test it out because of that hilton foods group if i could Mm -hmm. hfg so we've talked about this you've written about this stock on focused compounding last summer the stock uh sold off um a fair amount uh, a good amount see if i could find a a stock chart. Um, let's see. So we're up 22% year to date, but uh, it was this drop right here. So it went from, you know, uh, yeah, it dropped by like what? 50% in September mm-hmm. of, uh, 2022. You had followed the company for some time, wrote up the yeah. stock in 2020, 2019, that time frame. 
I don't know how serious you were about the company or if you were, but why did you pass on Hilton? Um, I don't have a lot of information on the company. And if I had more from management and what they do and stuff, I mean, I've read their reports. I don't think they tell you that much. Um, basically, the returns in the business have been getting lower over time, you know? Um, and so that's basically why not. Um, so like the gross margins have... Are you referring to gross margins? Are you referring mm, to like return well, on equity? Well, the margins aren't the uh, mar margins don't mean anything here because uh, the company's like processes meet as a um, uh, dedicated supplier. So you're building a plant with a customer. It's similar to like Ball or something like that, in which you're basically building a plant for a customer that's going to then serve all their needs. So you sign like a 15 year contract or something, you build a plant and one customer takes it in some of the earlier years for Hilton, or if you have a few smaller customers, a few take the capacity and you produce all the meat for them. So like if you go to your Tesco in the UK or something and you buy meat, it may have all been packed by Hilton foods, uh, you know, as in packing in terms of like the last part of the process of meat, of breaking it down into the portions that you're going to eat and packaging it in what you're going to see it over at the butcher's counter or whatever and all that. Um, so it's the private label stuff that you see there. Uh, I think some of it is good that they've done some stuff in Australia and uh, around there that has some upside. Um, because what, what tends to happen is that the you can predict for a little while that like results are going to be better or something as they use up the capacity. But then once the capacity is used up, the results don't get any better. Um, so, you know, if they're operating at less than hundred percent capacity or something, it, you know, that earnings are going to grow a lot. Like you could tell that they grow, but then once they reach that point, um, you won't expect any growth from the previous customers ever. Um, certainly in real terms, I wouldn't expect it to get better ever. So, um, yeah, if the company was more communicative, communicative, and I understood it better and everything, I might be more interested. Um, it's an interesting business model. The results have been good for a long time, but I, you see, obviously, that returns have declined over time. Um, and um, what that's all about, I don't know. It doesn't have particularly high returns on on capital and everything, so you got to be a little careful getting about price. And the price got pretty high, so even though coming down fifty percent or whatever, I mean, what's you know, things like price to book and stuff, it's not cheap. I mean, none of the ones that we've talked about are cheap on price to book, for instance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, return of the capital, for those listening, uh, in 2010, it peaked at basically 26%, and it's just declined ever since. And, uh, you know, the past few years, I mean, even before COVID, we're talking, you know, I don't know, an average of 10%, I mean, 8% and 12% and in between there. So, they've uh yeah it's drastically gone down yeah and they've um the other two things are they've made a series of small acquisitions right and um they also haven't really brought down their share count and stuff so share count stuff the returns on capital with the share count stuff and with the um uh acquisitions that they've made is more the issue they've made a series of acquisitions not all of them necessarily that exciting um they want to do other kinds of protein and stuff the annual reports have a lot on esg and everything but um because that's probably a big concern for them because obviously they're mainly a red meat type company um i think all their 
they don't exactly say it, but I believe that a huge amount of their profits probably come from that kind of stuff. I think beef and, and lamb, lamb is big in some of the countries that they're in. It would be odd in the United States, but they're not in the U.S. And they are big in countries like the U.K. And like I said, Australia, New Zealand, people in those countries eat more lamb than in the United States. So, um, But I think if you put those together, they don't make as much from poultry and fish and stuff as, as you would expect for a company like this, is my guess. But I don't know that. Yeah, the uh, shares outstanding have grown by about like 2% a year since uh, 2013. For those listening, uh, total shares outstanding, 72 million in 2013, and they're at 89 million today. I got to speak out loud what we're watching on the screen, Jeff, or looking at the screen, because I mm -hmm. always forget that like 80% of uh, listeners are podcast listeners, not on YouTube. Mm -hmm. So uh, shares outstanding have grown by 2% in you know the wrong direction. So. Yeah, if we go to the overview, can you see what like the earnings per share growth and stuff has been? Yeah, uh, let's see. So 10-year CAGR on EPS, uh, the opposite, negative 2%. Right, because what's happened in the last few years in earnings per share, though? Yeah, EPS has uh, fallen off a cliff. So in 2022, there was down 55, 56%. Um, yeah, so... I don't know. That could be misleading. There's inflation issues and stuff with that. Um, they basically make a profit per, you could figure it out, but a profit per kilogram, they would say. Um, and so I would expect that to adjust. Like we said, the margins and stuff will go back probably over time. Um, it's just a cost, not exactly a cost plus business, but you're just paying, you know, over time they should be able to negotiate in a way in which they know that they make, say, two pence a pound or whatever it might be, um, two pence a kilo or whatever. Um, you know, just some amount that is going to be the normal amount that they make for processing um, the volumes that they do. So it's possible under the contracts that they have with inflation and everything that you could obviously have a cost impact that you can't pass on right away. But it won't last because they can't find any other supplier that will give them a cheaper price than this one. So there's not much they can do about it. I mean, eventually the, the supermarket has to take the price increase. It's not going to be absorbed just by Hilton Food. So I wouldn't worry that much if, if we're seeing impa impacts from inflation or something, eventually it will adjust. So same with Stella Jones. It could get hurt for a year or something because it has contracts that run three to five years or something, but it's just going to reprice them. Certainly Hilton Food and Stella Jones have power over their customers in terms of you have to take the higher price because you can't go and find someone else who will supply this to you for cheaper. Um, some of their original plants and stuff that serving Tesco and everything are very highly automated, very expensive. Uh, so the things they did in Australia, um, they seem like they'd be very economical and a good idea for a supermarket to adopt. But some of the other ones don't. I've seen the one that they have in Eastern Europe and stuff. It seems very, uh, it's not highly automated. It seems like it's pretty labor intensive. doesn't look that great. Uh, next one that we can talk about, which we did scuttlebutt on in person when we first launched the fund, uh, Dover Motorsports, um, they were acquired, um, uh, by Speedway Motorsports, uh, for $3 and 61 cents per share, uh, which was an equity value of $131.5 million. Uh, we went and, uh, saw a racetrack that they were bringing back uh online uh, outside of nashville mm -hmm. correct and we also went to uh delaware as well dover delaware yeah and uh saw the park or saw the uh the racetrack so the casino. yeah maybe take us take us through uh 
Yeah, with slots. Take us through uh, Dover mm-hmm. Motorsports. Was that more so a timing thing? Was it more so we just didn't have the cash at the time because we were putting it elsewhere? What, what were your thoughts on Dover Motorsports? Well, management stood us up. So I think that was probably the reason. <laughs> Maybe that's why they set us, us up. They, it might be. Who knows? Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, we were there, but they didn't meet with us. So There's been a couple times like that throughout mm-hmm. our history it's quite, where it's quite common, you're like yeah. yeah where you're like wait why aren't these guys meeting with us and then or why won't they answer us and then i don't know a few months later you hear that they were being that they're being acquired or something like that you're like oh okay i guess that makes sense yeah sometimes that's the reason other times it's clearly that um it was nixed from on high um you know we were supposed to meet with someone and then the actual owner or the board or something you know, we might be supposed to meet with the, you know, and it'll, some companies and stuff, the CEO really can't meet with investors if they want to, because if there's a major owner or other people on the board that matter, they, they'll stop them from doing it if they don't want them to do it. So we've certainly had that happen where I'm sure that's the reason why is, uh, you know, so there, there's different reasons why it could be. Yeah. That's, that's an example of when, public at a you're looking at a chart there that like went public at a time to take advantage of it and then because they split that company in two the gaming part of it was split off from the um racetrack part of it and then they took it public and everything and then um you know what happened with the stock happened so i think some people got very rich off of that but certainly not outside shareholders you would consider it a pretty bad sign if we're reaching out to management and they just don't want to talk to us right yeah not necessarily. It doesn't. I mean, it, I don't know. Uh, I no. I I don't think that's a negative sign necessarily. I doubt that I would want to talk to anyone if I was running a public company. So, um, uh, what I meant though is they said they would meet with us and then they didn't meet with us when we were there. So, which happens sometimes. It happens quite a few times. Um, but. Uh, just not commenting at all, not having any investor relations and stuff. I wouldn't necessarily take as that negative. Um, but I don't know. I mean, obviously a lot of investors do consider it negative when they see that, um, many of the cheapest things that we've found and the ones that have gone up the most, I would say they probably aren't going to talk to you. Um, and it's not necessarily that good if they do talk to you a lot. So, um, and I don't know that. You know, the other thing is I'm not sure that it helps them out talking to you in a lot of cases because probably as many times as we like what we've heard, we don't like what we heard and it makes us less likely to invest. So I, I don't see the advantage for management to talking to you in these cases. Um, so, but, um, you know, I don't know why as many of them do, are talkative as there are. You know, it surprises me sometimes. But <laughs> Yeah, sometimes you'll find like the most obscure of obscure and honestly sometimes they're way more helpful than even larger companies and they're just not helpful mm-hmm. at all so i would say it's really just a crapshoot that way it's it's totally random yeah but with these asset ones probably the ones that didn't talk to us would have been the better ones to invest in i think so the ones that refuse to talk are probably the better ones to invest in from the asset value thing is that because they just know like what the value is of their assets like what their land yeah, some is some of them or... are scared Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- that wasn't the case in this one, but some of them are scared that you're going to 
Yeah. Well, we had one where I said that to you that we're not going to buy the stock because we know that the person is like, how many shares do you own? That's too many shares. I don't want that. You know, the family doesn't want outside. So we just won't own it then. Okay. Um, you know, they're, they're, we're not going to buy something where they are like, you know, they're, they're trying to make sure that they have it because they don't, you know, this is a different, this one's a different situation, but there are some, they don't have a lot of money and they own a lot of the stock, but they don't own all the stock. And, you know, so if you own 30% of the stock and you don't have any money outside of the business really, and someone starts buying up some of it, you don't like that because you think it's your business and stuff, but someone in your family took it public at one time and gave up a lot of it and you're trying to hold it together um so yeah there's a lot of family businesses and stuff where they wish that other people weren't involved the way that the tracks have been run <laughs> it's not you know i mean international speedway was a penny it was a pink sheet stock and stuff and was public for a very long time and you could have invested in it but a lot of these i don't even know how well that did after it was publicly like listed on major exchange its best run was probably when it was in the pink sheets but, um, yeah, they haven't been good for outside in investors. A lot of them had super voting shares. Um, obviously, they have deals with the the um, boards that award the races and stuff. Obviously, International Speedway, the family, controlled was pretty much controlling NASCAR and International Speedway, same family. And, um, you know, yeah, these weren't good investments for, for outside shareholders. They were taking public at prices that were high. They were taking private at prices that were low. Almost all of them were taking. I mean, some of them, I guess, were acquired by larger uh, tracks, um, circuits of tracks, you know, but a lot of them were taken private by the same families and stuff. So, yeah, it wasn't a good thing for, for shareholders, outsiders. Is there a common reason that usually keeps you away from uh, investing in a company, just one that always comes up. Is it more so price? Would you say? Is it more so just the business itself that you don't like, or one that you don't think you would be want to be invested in? No, I don't think there's a common one. I mean, this would have been fine. We could have bought this. Um, it seemed cheap. I mean, we saw the. I mean, it, it it's cheaper than you might think. I think it's cheaper than is disclosed necessarily in the. It's pretty cheap. Um, you know, but we saw other ones that were even cheaper. I'd say, and some that it went up even more, even though they weren't taken private. Um, so yeah, there's lots of ones where you probably should buy the asset play thing. I mean, they had a, you know, so that they made their money off the the Delaware track. They really weren't making money off the um, track in Tennessee, but we saw it and we saw what they were doing around there and stuff. And it, you know, it's crazy that they had this thing that big with that much land and everything that was making no money. Um, so it was a very cheap stock, you know? Um, it could go wrong in different ways, but there's not good reason why it should. Um, at the time, the largest owner was quite old, right? I believe so. I don't remember all the details on that, but I remember looking through who owned what stock and everything. Um, but we saw other things. This is not the cheapest asset play we saw in person. I mean, it's not the one that went up the most in a short period of time. We saw something that went up even more. And yeah, they were very cheap versus their land and stuff. So this was very cheap and other things we saw were very cheap. Why were they very cheap? Because there's no catalyst for why it should go up. They're controlled by people who weren't necessarily... I mean, you can look at the results over the time that was public and stuff. Returns on invested capital aren't necessarily that high. The share, the stock often didn't go up over time. Um, and then when it is taken private or something, it's taken private either by 
insiders or in some deal uh, where that's a part of it, you know. Um, I mean, the reason this was cheap to some extent and definitely the reason some other things were even cheaper um, is disliked insiders and what they were doing. Control company people figure it'll never go private or it'll never be taken over or whatever. And, you know, that's why you have cheap asset plays usually. So we talked about uh, VTS as a spinoff that you wrote up and liked. A uh, spinoff that you also wrote up and did not like uh, was cars.com. So maybe you could talk through like the difference between a spinoff that you do like versus a spinoff that you don't like. Uh, it looks like, if I'm looking at a chart right here, uh, cars.com spun off around $25 per share in 2017. Uh, here we are today at eighteen and a half dollars per share. Um, so it had a lot of competition in the industry. They were going to spend a lot on advertising and stuff. So opposite supply situation. We were talking about you know more constrained supply and stuff in oil. This was looked like it was the opposite way. So yeah, I was just too concerned. It was too fast growing and too competitive an industry that way that everyone else was going to compete with them a lot, and that their previous results were better um, than their future results were going to be. But they, there was other, there was good and bad things. I mean, it was attractive to somewhat because they had certain deals that they already had in place and stuff. Um, cause they're more connected to certain, um, I mean, it's a little complicated in terms of the history of the company and stuff, but they had more of a history in terms of involvement with legacy media stuff, which is how they were formed really and everything. And so the new agreements that they would have under that would probably be favorable and and stuff. So I don't know. From a you-can-be-a-stock-market-genius perspective, it probably looked like a good spinoff. But from an owning it for the long term, not a good spinoff. Most of the competitors were losing money and willing to spend a lot of money. I, I, you know, that worries me. That's why when people ask about the entertainment stuff, I'm like, just, you know, don't get involved. Don't buy Paramount. Don't buy Lionsgate and stuff. I mean, maybe they'll work out. But um, it, until people in your industry aren't willing to lose money and spend money trying to acquire subscribers at negative economic value and stuff. Why be in the industry? You wouldn't want to be in the oil industry if people were drilling on economic wells and stuff, right? So you'd say, okay, I'll sell VTS. I'll get out of this. I'll do what, you know, so you have to be insulated in some way from competition that is irrational or competition has to be reasonably rational or something, but you don't want to be in industries where, so this is at the time, this is a pretty hot industry, you know, when this was a spinoff and everything. And so it just, it was too worrying how much companies are spending on customer acquisition costs and everything to me, but you had a lot of companies that were burning cash and were willing to keep spending on advertising. So, and that that's my feeling on streaming and stuff is the same thing. When people talk about it, I think it will turn. I don't know when it will turn, I mean, I think it already is turning that it won't get worse than it was, but there's still a level of willingness of companies to um, try to grow subscribers and everything, even when it doesn't make sense and lose money. But at some point that will stop. Is there a stock that really just sticks out to you where when you hear the name or you come across it, it just eats you inside because you pass on it in your own no. eyes? Is there anything that... Uh, you know, really bothers you that you, you passed on? Uh, no. Nothing? Mm -mm. No. There's lots of stocks that I passed on that have gone up or that I should have bought or something, but no, it doesn't eat at me that 
I passed on it or anything like that. I mean, some of them, um, there's tons of examples. I mean, I was supposed to write up Transcat. I talked about this and the stock's gone up a lot, but it never particularly did any. I mean, the, what happened with Transcat is that it was going to make a transition into a more service-based company. Uh, this is back when I was writing singular diligence and, um, it's basically sells calibration, uh, you know, measuring devices and things like that for life sciences and other things we're measuring stuff is significantly, um, important, right. Throughout the United States, basically Puerto Rico, places like that. So, um, it was moving more to a service-based business, uh, we thought, and we thought that would improve returns and, and all this. And look, if you look at the stock, that narrative has gotten out, Right. And the stock has responded to it, but the business hasn't changed. So if you're looking at investing in things because, you know, people will like it because, you know, if you find the thing that is the AI thing that people are going to be excited about, um, it doesn't even really matter if they get big in it. As long as people think that they're big in it is what matters. And same thing here with Transcat. I mean, one day it may become a very different business, but if you look at QuickFS, the business has not changed and certainly not until the last few years. Have you seen any real change in terms of margins and stuff to reflect the service aspect of it? Um, but we believe that would happen. And then I think that really got out into the market that that has happened. Uh, but it's just been a re-rating of the stock. I don't see it's really underperformed in terms of how quick that transition is versus what I expected. And yet the stock has done better than I would have expected. So business not as good as I expected, stock better. And there's tons of examples of stocks where that happened. I was going to say, have you ever held a stock or owned a stock and that turned out to be the situation where they pivoted and went a different way and it ended up being way more successful than you would have thought or what you thought of when you thought about like the range of outcomes, like they just went a totally different way and you made money differently than you would have thought or? No, I mean, Transcat... The stock, I believe, is up for the reasons that I would think, but those reasons haven't materialized. You know, what's happened is there's a story about it, which is out now, and that people really like, but it's just a recognition of that story over time. But yeah, that happens a lot. I mean, um, I talked about FICO. I, I, you know, it underperformed my ex it, my expectations as a business, and it outperformed in terms of a stock. In the last few years, it's performed well as a business. But in the early part of the last decade, it was very middling performance, and yet the stock price kept going higher and higher and higher because um, there's a big recognition of the quality of the business and stuff. Does that make you feel a bit, I don't know, like I guess it's a good thing, right, if you, you held the stock or you still made money on it, but I always find that interesting where the business underperforms your expectations, but the stock does way better than you would have ever thought. Yeah. Um, I mean most of your big returns, your hundred baggers and stuff are through a lot of multiple expansion. Yeah. So here multiples expanded from, it was, it was less than two times sales. Uh, I mean, it depends on exactly what, how they're using sales, if they're trailing it forward or whatever, but certainly it was probably, you know, it, it went at least seven times up in terms of the multiple, in terms of the sales. Um, and when we talked about activation, the same thing happened. So, you know, um, Activision probably went from, well, I owned it on an enterprise value to sales basis. 
sub one time sales to eight time sales and FICO probably went from two to 15 or whatever we just saw. Yeah. I mean, out of 08. Yeah. I mean, you're talking a little bit below two. I mean, if you bought it, yeah. Yeah. 1.6 times, Mm -hmm. 1.62, 1.31. And then it, you know, went two and then skyrocketed higher. Yeah. So the low was 1.3 times sales. The high is over 10 times that. Mm -hmm. So, which is crazy, but you know, that is, it's not the right price today. The enterprise value of sales is too high today, probably, and it was too low then. So those are your big opportunities, obviously, um, is to buy things that then have the big multiple expansion. Mm-hmm. So but all the ones we talk about with the Microsofts, the NVIDIAs, the whatevers, that's what happened because Microsoft's price to sales must have been very low 10 years ago because it still had big margins, you know? So a, a a lot of it is the change in the price to sales, not the sales. I mean, that's the point where I talk about, you know, how would NVIDIA or something not do great over the next 10 years? It's not that it won't grow sales, but it's that there could be a big... I mean, what is the multiple on price to sales for NVIDIA right now? What did we say? It was like, was it 30 times or something like that? We could pull it up right now. That sounds uh, like yeah. Yeah. Okay. Excuse me. I'm off. Uh, 37 times. <laughs> 37 times. So yeah. given the free cash flow margin and the EBIT margin and everything, a 90% decline in price to sales is to be expected at some point from here. So sales can grow very high, but you're going to have a 90% contraction in the multiple possibly at one time. You know, but not just possibly, very likely. I mean, four times sales is not going to be an unusual price for this stock historically or whatever. So... um that's where like you'll be offsetting whatever growth you have in sales will be offsetting that contraction in the price to sales. Um, but I mean, read the book hundred baggers and all that, uh, or hundred to one, the stock market. Um, a lot more of it comes from the multiple expansion than people might think a lot of it. Um, cause it's a combination of the two things about, you know, you, you want to have the earnings go up and everything over time, but it's also a big increase in the multiple. Um, yeah. Yeah. When we talked about, you know, 101 in the stock market or 100 baggers, I mean, if you look at those stocks on a chart, you had to have resisted selling. If for you to like have a true 100 bagger, you had to resist selling yeah. so many different times when you, you know, at, you know, certainly throughout the cycle of holding the company, you knew it was probably, you know, not cheap, right? More than fairly value mm-hmm. trading at insane multiples and then seeing it drop, you know, 50% a year or whatever. I mean, that takes guts um, when, when holding uh, companies like that. Yeah. But also, you know, a lot of the, you've already gotten a lot of the return before then. I mean, I know that people are excited by the idea of getting exactly that return, but you can sell that and go into something else. You know, even if it's, uh, 20 bagger, right? Um, that's a very big return that you have versus something else. And then you can get that return through other things. Um, it's, it's not that difficult. Uh, I would focus on uh, at least just thinking in terms of like 10 times or something, but yeah, the ones, because the ones that do the hundred, you know, um, especially people like to focus on which ones got there the fastest and everything. And yeah, there's a big part where it'd be hard to keep it. Um, because it gets overpriced. 
anything that's a hundred bagger probably was too cheap. You know, it was very cheap at the time that you could have bought it, right? But then also is usually too expensive at the time that you would have sold it. There's a few exceptions to that, but that happens a lot. It's just more likely that that would happen if you're just randomly picking them out. Now, some you have that you can see over a long period of time, they would have returned a hundred times or something and they would have kept going up over time. But you have to be careful about that, uh, especially when you're measuring them as of today. You're likely, if you look right now for hundred baggers, you're likely to get a lot of stocks that are expensive today because they've recently become hundred baggers or something, you know, that's always the case to be careful about the measuring period. That's why those books that are older, you know, both of them are older now, but the original one is quite old is useful because then you can also ask, well, what happened to these things after that? Got it. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us on the Focus Compounding podcast. If this is the first time you are tuning in, be sure to check out all of our content on the internet. Uh, go to focuscompound.com to get access to investment write-ups. We talked a lot about VTS today. Uh, Jeff wrote that stock up uh, at focuscompounding.com. If you're interested in learning about our money management services, you can reach out to me at andrew at focuscompounding.com. And of course, wherever you are listening or watching us, uh, be sure to hit that subscribe button, leave us a rating review. Um, that still goes a very long way for us. So I'll thank everybody so much for tuning in to both of us and we will see you in the next podcast. Take care.